Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories we continue to follow is how states are planning to reopen. California was one of the first states to issue stay-at-home orders, and it could be one of the last to fully reopen. There are many signs that coronavirus restrictions could be in place for the long haul. The Cal State University program plans to cancel almost all in-person classes in the fall. And in L.A. County, safer-at-home orders have been extended indefinitely, as some restrictions have begun to relax. For more on this, we spoke to Colleen Shalby, reporter at the L.A. Times. California has been taking a pretty cautious approach, but I think what's really interesting is that we are seeing varying responses at a county-by-county level. So, A handful of counties that are growing are easing up restrictions. Some restaurants are allowing for dining right now versus other counties like L.A. County, which is the most populous in the state that's still being hit hardest by the amount of infections and the death toll is keeping restrictions, loosening some while still trying to do it in the most cautious way, I think, to prevent a resurgence and outbreak. And that's kind of where some of the mixed messaging is. We have the governor has their own set of guidelines and this phase reopening that we're going through. And you drill it down and we're talking about like L.A. County, as you mentioned, they're not hitting any of those guidelines just yet. They haven't met any of those thresholds to reopen stuff yet. So we might see some reopening in some parts of the state, other parts, maybe not so. You know, Newsom, when he initially revealed this order, basically had kind of clear guidelines for what the counties needed to follow. And at the time, a lot of counties went beyond the order and have since started to kind of dial back. And now that Newsom is lifting restrictions even further, you've got some counties that are allowed to continue on and to kind of loosen things in a much broader way. And then you have L.A. County and many of the San Francisco Bay Area counties that are not totally eased up, even though the state technically is allowing it. Although Newsom has said that many of the allowances are not for the counties that are still being pretty significantly hit. So in that regard, in L.A. County, we've got retail businesses that are opening for curbside pickup. We've got beaches that are reopening, but only for active recreation. So you can't sunbathe, you can't sit on the beach. You've got trails that are reopening, but groups are still not allowed. So they're really trying to reopen the economy slowly. And in this way, knowing that people are being pretty hurt, businesses are hurting right now. But while doing it in this very cautious way, I think because there's this real possibility that if they go too quickly, since we haven't seen a steady decline over 14 days, that things could spike back up. Let's focus a little bit on L.A. County. As I mentioned earlier, the county public health director, Dr. Barbara Ferrer, said that, uh, you know, she told the Board of Supervisors that they would have to extend the safer at home orders that were supposed to expire on the 15th. And then she caused a furor when she said, hey, this is going to be going on for another few months or indefinitely. We're going to have to practice this. And as I mentioned, it causes big confusion because we are starting to reopen certain aspects of it. And, you know, everybody's eyes just kind of rolled when they started hearing that. They're like, oh, no, we're in for three more months of this. But that's just kind of the reality that since Los Angeles County is one of the bigger hotspots for the state, they have to take a more cautious approach. Barbara Ferrer commented further on this yesterday during the L.A. County briefing, saying that there is no 
end date to the health officer order, which, as you mentioned, expires tomorrow, but it's since been extended. And really what's happening now is that we're being told that small gatherings are still not allowed. You know, events are still not allowed, but there are these slight modifications that we're going to continue to see. So while you could go to your favorite bookstore, if it has now reopened for curbside pickup, you still can't go inside. While you could get takeout from your favorite restaurant that might have been recently closed, you still can't go in for dine-in. And that's different from some other counties, which have not been as impacted and are loosening up a bit further compared to what's going on here in L.A. County. And you drill down even further, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti just put the new rules out there that every resident is required to wear a face covering just when you leave your home. So any retail business, exercise in your neighborhood, riding on any public transportation, you need some type of face covering. And that's a bit of a change in the language from what the county officials have said. Even today, Barbara Ferreira said that all residents need to have a face mask on them at all times. But she seemed to imply that if you're doing solitary activity, like you're going for a run, you perhaps do not need to wear that face mask. But that, again, is a little bit of a confusion in the language, even from officials from the city versus officials at the county level. So I think things keep changing day by day and the messaging keeps changing. And I think everyone is trying to keep up, but there's definitely a very cautious approach here. And that's where a lot of frustration set in. You know, there is no streamlined thing. You're hearing something here, you're hearing something there, and we're getting protests, people demanding to have things reopened. There's a certain sense of uh, fatigue and frustration that sets in with all of this. In California, though, how many counties are we looking at that have met some of these thresholds to reopen? I know it's only a handful of them, but what are we looking at there? So there's been at least 12 counties that have reopened, I mean, to the extent that they're allowed to working with Newsom's office. And there's at least 30 others that are trying to work with Newsom to figure out how they could go about doing that. So there's quite a few and it's expanding that will reopen over the coming days or weeks. But L.A. County and some of the San Francisco Bay counties are the ones that are kind of been instructed that they can't go too far just yet. And I think that that could be even more confusing where you've got one county that's maybe more fully reopened and you have people that either work there or live elsewhere or travel to and from that might not know the rules of a different county. So I think now what's going to happen is that everyone just needs to pay attention to what's going on throughout the state if they have right. any intention of going outside of their boundaries. Exactly. Or the people that want to get out, they'll hop over to another county just to enjoy something that's open and then go back home. There is going to be a lot of confusion coming up and everything shut down so quickly. But this reopening is going to be very slow and gradual. And a lot of these restrictions are going to be in place for some time to come. Colleen Shalby, reporter at the L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are still constantly learning more about how COVID-19 affects a person's body, and they are finding that it is more than just a respiratory disease. It can damage the kidneys, heart, brain, and blood vessels. Doctors are also reassessing how to treat it. Blood thinners are being used to treat blood clots, and genetics could also play a role in how it affects you personally. For more on all the ways that coronavirus attacks the body, we spoke to Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at the Washington Post. What doctors and researchers thought was going to be primarily a respiratory disease and that they geared up to treat as a respiratory disease has turned into something that is much more widespread when it hits different people. That is, it hits different people in different ways. 
So, for example, one of the first things they saw that had nothing to do with the lungs was people coming into the hospital before they were even in intensive care having damage to their kidneys. And then people who got even sicker than that were requiring dialysis. That has nothing to do with the lungs. They are seeing blood clots that break off from the legs and occur in other parts of the body, then travel to the heart and cause heart attacks. So they have a virus on their hands. We have a virus on our hands that is much more difficult to cope with than just the respiratory type of virus we saw with SARS or MERS. It's much more severe than that, and it's much more of a challenge than that. And what we've talked about before, they think it's a combination of two main things. We've talked about the overreaction of the immune system or the cytokine storm. But the other thing that they really are kind of seeing a lot more now is it causes a lot of damage to blood vessels. And the damage to the blood vessels is kind of what loosely leads to all of these other problems that we're talking about now. But talk a little bit about the blood vessel damage that happens. Without getting too technical, the virus attaches to cells through a receptor called ACE2. And it seems to particularly target the endothelial cells on the inside lining of blood vessels. As you can imagine, they're everywhere, all throughout your body. And if the virus finds those receptors and targets those blood vessels, it in some ways doesn't matter where they're located. As long as the virus can find a home and can do its damage, it's going to do so. Now, these ACE2 receptors are very plentiful in organs in the lungs, in the intestines, even in the kidneys. So when the virus targets these blood vessels and attaches through these receptors, it can do damage all across the body. How has the treatment changed? How doctors respond to this? As we've been talking about early on, we thought it was going to be a primarily respiratory disease affecting the lungs. That's why there was such a huge call for ventilators. Everybody needs ventilators. We need tons of ventilators in case the oxygen levels drop really low in people and they need help breathing. And that's kind of changed now. And because there is this focus on blood vessels and things like that, they're saying that blood thinners might help out in some of these areas. In response to the coagulating blood, to the clotting blood that this virus causes, there is an increased use of blood thinners in hospitals across the United States. There's also this phenomenon, and this is respiratory, that people come in with a silent hypoxia, which means that the oxygen level in their blood is incredibly low at sometimes down near level that would normally cause unconsciousness or death. But they're still talking. They're still actually conscious and upright. Doctors have become increasingly aware that people who are functioning and still seem to be okay with sort of minimal symptoms actually have very low oxygen levels in their blood. So they're becoming much more adept at checking that quickly and intervening quickly. With the kidneys, unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, so many people require dialysis that in one hospital, they ran short of the material, the equipment, and the fluids that they need to do dialysis. And in another one, they had so many people who were acquiring it for 24 hours a day that they had to ration the time on those machines. So this is a virus that requires a lot of ingenuity on the part of the healthcare providers. So where this virus first began as a respiratory virus, they think it's killing as a cardiovascular virus. What's the hypothesis on why there's such a range of effects on different people? I've been reading that they just think it could be genetics. Just everybody is a little different, and that's why people are all affected a different way. This is one of those questions that's going to take years to sort out. Could be genetics, right? Could just be my makeup different from your makeup. When the virus hits, it affects me somewhat differently than it does 
you. Could be our underlying comorbidities. You have one kind of illness that you've been living with all your life, and I have a different kind of illness that I've been living with all my life. Could be our age. Could be how much virus we got, under what conditions we got the virus. They just don't know. And if you think about it, this is a six-month pandemic. We're in the early innings of this ball game. Normally, you make conclusions like this after years, sometimes decades of research. And we're not going to know until that research occurs, even if it occurs faster than it normally does. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Another story we're following throughout this pandemic is conspiracy theories that keep popping up. And big social media platforms have been pretty quick to stop the spread of misinformation during the pandemic. But last week, we saw the first true hit conspiracy video of the coronavirus era. It was called The Plandemic, and it got over 8 million views on Facebook and YouTube. The video has since been removed, but not before making a star out of discredited scientist Dr. Judy Mikovits. This video also purported to say that if you wore a face mask, it could reactivate the coronavirus in your body. For more on what to know about the pandemic conspiracy video, we'll speak to Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. So the video is a conspiracy theory, as you note, and the basic idea seems to be that some shadowy elites are conspiring to use the pandemic to seize power, maybe make money by creating vaccines. And the star of this 26-minute clip that went viral is this woman named Judy Mikovits, who has become a kind of hero to the anti-vaccine crowd. She's a discredited scientist who published a book in April called Plague of Corruption that sort of depicts her as a truth teller fighting scientists who aren't willing to accept inconvenient facts. And so far-right publications began to promote her book, and this documentary that is forthcoming will apparently be taking an even closer look at these sort of baseless conspiracies. This video has since, uh, since it kind of blew up, has been taken down. But tell us about some of the crazy accusations in it. I mean, one of the things that keeps popping up, and I think it was the main thing that really got it pulled down, was they were saying that wearing a mask will literally activate your own virus. That's right. And that is the thing that got it taken down. Platforms like YouTube and Facebook generally do not want to remove content from the network, and they try to enable a maximum of free speech, but they do make an exception for stuff that is actively harmful. And while a lot of this video pandemic is just kind of conspiracies saying, don't forget, a lot of people are making money and other people are going to become more powerful. That's not why it got taken down. It got taken down because, as you say, it warned people against wearing masks, you know, saying that it would reinfect them, which, of course, there's no basis for that whatsoever. But you can imagine if a lot of people watch that and believe that it could have a really negative effect on public health. So initially, Facebook didn't want to remove it. But when it sort of stumbled across that particular claim, it said, OK, we've actually got to take this thing down. And Dr. Judy Mikovits for herself, she does have a degree in biology from the University of Virginia, a PhD in molecular biology. She worked on the National Cancer Institute. She has a lot of things under her belt, but then she started getting into work about chronic fatigue syndrome and vaccines. And this is kind of where she was derailed a little bit. A lot of people discredited a lot of the later things that she was researching. 
So like in 2009, she had published research saying that a mouse retrovirus caused chronic fatigue syndrome, which got a lot of attention, but it was discredited a couple years later and the journal ultimately retracted it. And then in this sort of like weird side story, she was actually put in jail on charges of theft, which apparently involved computers disappearing. Those charges were dropped, but the whole thing was a scandal and she was kind of sidelined and lost her scientific career. But after that, she sort of drifted into this anti-vax crowd. And because of the credentials that you mentioned, the anti-vaxxers have sort of lifted her up as this brave truth teller, even though what she's saying is largely nonsense. So let's talk about how something like this goes viral. The usual players come up, obviously, Facebook and YouTube have a huge part in this just because of how big the platforms are. But there was a lot of Facebook groups that were sharing this. And then beyond that, even as you mentioned, there's a lot of mistruths in this video, but it also takes time for their fact checkers to go through this. So as you mentioned, they didn't take it down right away. It kind of was circulating around for a while while they were trying to do some of that fact checking. It's a really interesting story. The way that things go viral on Facebook and YouTube is always changing based on things that the platforms do to try to stop bad stuff from happening. And sort of like, as soon as they fix one problem, another emerges. So over the past year, Facebook has put a lot more attention on groups, getting people to join groups, kind of moving you away from that newsfeed. And there are a lot of conspiracy groups, anti-vax groups, where this video clip was very popular. And what happened is people were sharing it in the group, and what they were sharing was actually a link to YouTube. And so from those Facebook groups, they were able to send 7.1 million views to one video within a period of between 36 and 48 hours. So just within that short period of time, Facebook drove all of that traffic to YouTube. And so it was kind of an unwitting tag team between the two platforms that sent this thing viral. As you noted, it did take a while for the platforms to fully understand what was in the video. The video is 26 minutes long. It contains a lot of claims and they had to go through it sort of point by point and ultimately make the determination that it had to come down. But it sort of speaks to this cliche, this quote that is attributed to Mark Twain, that the lie gets halfway around the world before the truth can put its shoes on. And that was definitely the case here. And it was also this whole thing with obviously all the algorithms and it, this big cycle. She had just uh, published a book not too long ago, and it became this thing where searches for her name brought up searches for the video and vice versa. Searches for the video would bring up searches for her name. So it was kind of this big cycle where it's just feeding off of itself for a while until Facebook and YouTube took these things down. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that Judy Mikovits has something to sell, right? She has a book to sell. And this whole viral event on Facebook and YouTube has been very good for her. She had a number one bestseller on Amazon over the weekend. Yesterday, it was still at number six. So all of this has been of a huge benefit to somebody who is selling this very delicious idea that just doesn't have any basis in reality. Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.